Right, we are in Romans 3. You want to get, <coughs> get to there? Been sick this last week, but I think I'm better now. Now it's just allergies in February, which makes a lot of sense. Um, so to before we get into Romans 3, I've put up some stuff here that we get in Romans 1 um, and towards the end uh, in 16. And the reason I do this is because I think the challenge for reading Romans is to try to make sense of Romans as a whole. Uh, if you just go with a few verses, you can kind of make sense of a few verses in many different ways. But when you try to make sense of Romans uh, from start to finish, it's really difficult. Uh, I was thinking of my daughter who has like 10 little stuffed animals and she wants to carry them everywhere. So I've taught her to kind of like hold out her dress and just pile them in there. And that's what it feels like with Romans sometimes is you're trying to hold all these ideas together and it doesn't really fit very easily. Uh, so as we're thinking in Romans and as we get into Romans 3 and this language of God's righteousness revealed uh, and justification and all this stuff, <coughs> we're reminded that we have some sort of, um, I don't know, borders or background or things that Paul takes for granted that we're, we're to be thinking, okay, how does this fit into what he's saying in chapter 3? How does what uh, Paul's going to say about God's righteousness uh, make sense of Jesus as Christ, as this awaited for Messiah or King, and Jesus as Lord? How does it make sense of God as Father? Uh, how does the good news or the gospel um, that he's going to proclaim uh, fit into notions of good news or gospel that we get in the Old Testament or perhaps in, um, in the Roman world in general? Uh, in the Old Testament, the good news, uh, God reigns uh, in Romans. Uh, the king is born or there's been a victory, excuse me, in, in a Roman context. How does the Old Testament scripture help us think about uh, what the good news is, what God's righteousness is? Uh, and we already talked about this um, um, a couple weeks ago about how this, this makes us kind of expand our sometimes narrow view of God's righteousness as something like a legal status he gives us uh, and expands to something like uh, God setting things right as we're expecting, or as the Old Testament expects him to do. Notions of grace, how does mercy and shalom fit into this? And um, one of those key things in Romans, justified by faith, how do we make sense of justification by faith um, apart from works when Paul can also talk about the obedience of faith? So we've got justification by faith apart from works, yet faith implies obedience. So all these things we're trying to hold together as we make sense of Romans as a whole, uh, rather than cherry-picking some things to make um, kind of an easy reading of Romans. Uh, so a little bit of a difficult reading uh, ahead of us. Um, so just a recap to get us started on to chapter 3. That's the prologue. Um, <coughs> chapter 1 talks a lot about the Gentile rejection of God. Uh, there, there seemed to be this rejection of ultimate truth. When you reject the one who created you, it leads to um, distorted minds. When you reject ultimate truth, all the other truths seem to get distorted with it. So you have distorted mind, distorted acts. And while Paul highlights uh, distorted sexual practice, you see that this list then extends to sins that uh, everyone can identify with. So it's not uh, just... Uh, some people included in this, but all of us, uh, in a sense, um, live contrary to the way we were made to be by nature, which is those in community, those uh, who care for one another. Instead, we uh, find ourselves selfish um, and uh, prideful and all these things that shouldn't be by nature what we are. Chapter 2, uh, Paul seems to be saying what's true of the Gentiles is also true of the Jews. Um, there's some really complicated stuff in chapter 2. Uh, one way of making sense of Paul saying that Gentiles can live proper lives might be him saying, 
Gentile Christians who have the spirit are enabled to live the, this way. Uh, and George helped us see that that Romans Road idea is uh, also too narrow of a reading of Romans. Um, and now, uh, with that kind of brief review, we'll get into chapter 3. With that in mind. All right. Chapter 3, verse 1. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. I'll just flip for a second over to verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Do we have an advantage? Not at all. So did you pick up on that? What's the advantage? Much. Do we have any advantage? No. Um, So yes, there's advantage. And no, there's not an advantage. Um, And so uh, the way Paul seems to develop this um, later is, is to say, yes, part of your advantage is you've been entrusted with Scripture. But as we get in verse 20 later, but Scripture doesn't enable righteousness. Um, That Scripture helps you see what sin is, but Jew and Gentile alike are under sin. So yes, advantage, but not uh, quite the advantage that they might think. Verse 2, much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. Verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? (coughs) Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? All right, here, let me erase this now that um, I've mentioned it. Here's where Romans starts to get kind, starts to get kind of tricky, uh, maybe helping us see things that we might have overlooked before. Uh, verse 3, notice this language of God's faithfulness. The language there is pistis. That's the Greek. This is the, could be translated, the faith of God. Now here, when we think about God's faithfulness, we're thinking about something like God doing right. Fair enough? Not too shocking? Like, oh, okay, big deal. Uh, Here's why that might matter. We're thinking of it as not primarily how God believes. Now, some of you know where I'm going with this, because in a little while, I'll talk about uh, justified by faith. And so this might make us think, okay, is this talking about by God's faithfulness or Jesus' faithfulness or even our own faithfulness? See how same Greek word here, which we're going to get to, uh, we seem to say pretty obviously is not about belief. But if we're trying to read Romans start to finish, Uh, we realize that uh, Paul has much more in mind when he says faith than what you believe in. Um, When we think about God's faithfulness, I think uh, that two things are implied by the context uh, that we've (coughs) been looking at. Um, So, uh, one, God doing right with regard to sin. the first two chapters he's talked about the problem of sin but the second thing uh, that he seems to have talked about uh, with God doing right is um, God doing right with regard to the covenant his faithfulness to Israel his faithfulness to his covenant if they are unfaithful will God still be faithful faithful to what well perhaps faithful to his covenant uh, is implied So how is God going to deal with his covenant and be faithful to it? How is he going to deal with sin? Um, 
George, would you add anything to this? Can I, can I add one thing to that? Is that uh, about the righteousness of God, you know, you get involved in this, is that he did this so that, 46, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness in the present time. What's interesting is, he goes next to so as to be just, is that if Christ would have not sent his son to die. Will you pause it there? Since we're, let me get all the way down to yeah, there. Yeah, you know yeah what, so we you can know see how I'm it's, going with that. yeah, so I want to get all the way to there it, first, it, it yeah. expands that a little. Yeah, he, little so much of what he's doing. Something uh, he had to do because of his infinite love. Yes. Otherwise, he wouldn't be God as we know it. Yeah, yeah, so, so much about the nature of God is built into this. Yeah, so let's go verse by verse and uh, and kind of right. wrestle slowly were, through this. I thought you were just yeah. dealing with God first. And no, no, yeah. We're going to try to try to see how this unfolds um, in Paul's logic, which sometimes it's hard to see Paul's logic um, in this. Uh, George, first three verses, anything? Give me a thumbs up so far. Okay. <laughs> verse 4. Um so, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. <coughs> this is from Psalm 51. Uh, traditionally, this is David's psalm uh, after his uh, affair with Bathsheba. And a uh, couple things going on in this psalm. One, he's saying uh, God is right in his judgment. It kind of fits here. God is right with regard to his judgment on sin. The other part, though, if you know how that psalm unfolds, he says, created me a clean heart, uh, as though uh, part of what he's looking forward to, uh, if I might add this here, that kind of goes with covenant, and then it came up last week, is something like, I like the language of vocation or enabling. I'll say enabling faithfulness. How is God going to do right? Part of what he's doing right uh, is rightly dealing with sin. God has proved right. I have done wrong. It's kind of David says. But partly how he does right is he's going to make us right, enabling us to be the kind of people we were made to be, creating us a clean heart, uh, put a new spirit within me kind of thing. So we've got two, maybe threefold view of God being faithful or God doing what's right. Uh, and this is how it's testified in scriptures, as he says. So you know, holding so many things uh, together here. Verse 5, but if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? <coughs> I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Their condemnation is just. So this seems to be pretty straightforward. If uh, if your wrongdoing reveals God's justice, it doesn't make your wrong a right. That's pretty uh, obvious. So even now, if you get caught stealing and uh, you get convicted for it, and in so doing you highlight some good in our justice system, your thievery doesn't become a good. Um, so it's, it's pretty obvious. Uh, uh, just because wrong might bring out the right in something else, it doesn't make your wrong a right. Um, as Paul will say later, um, shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? Of course not. Um, are you crazy? Uh, verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge <coughs> that Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin. Um, 
Your translation might say under the power of sin. Uh, it just says under sin in the Greek. I think power might be appropriate here. I think it fits the context. I don't have a problem with that. Um, if that's what's going on, though, notice that um, I need two boards is what I really need um, in here. All right, so keep in mind God's faithfulness is doing right. All right, they are under sin. So sometimes when you see Paul being so dense like this, one of the good things to do is to ask yourself, what does this imply? What's part of the problem? If you're under sin, uh, part of what I think is implied is not just that we are under the guilt of sin or under the condemnation of sin, but under the power of sin. And this goes back to that idea that, that God's not only dealing justly with sin, but he's doing right and helping us get out of that power so we can be who we were created to be. So as we better understand the problem, we better understand how God fixes it. Uh, and then we better understand how to live that out. So if under sin is a problem, um, and I think we've seen in here guilt is some sort of problem, uh, then we need two solutions. We need the debt or forgiveness uh, dealt with, um, and we need freedom to be who we were made to be. As it is written, verse 10, again, we're thinking about how the law and the prophets, how scripture gets us thinking about uh, what's to come. Um, George, do you have anything before I keep, keep moving? I know I'm doing a lot. Um, any clarification stuff at this point before I, I keep, keep moving? The thing you're about, saying about covenant, which is sort of you know, mentioned here at, at the beginning, um, and it'll, it'll fully develop in, in Romans where it really gets deep and complicated. But covenant is irrevocable, um, irrespective in terms of what humans have done. If God has created a covenant with the, the Jewish people, it is absolutely irrevocable. Now, they may go through. Uh, Hellacious deal like they did in, in Jeremiah um, <coughs> in dispersion, but you'll find out later that um, when it comes to the Jewish people, that it's totally irrevocable even if they deny the cross. So yeah. So and I think whole, whole yeah. idea of Do you have a covenant? Yeah. Is, is beginning here, um, and it's going to really develop into a um, deep. And I think that's that's a great point. I, would, I meant to tell you, too, somebody mentioned last time to repeat what people say in the front because people in the back oh, yeah. can hear it. So I want to repeat that so you guys can hear what he's saying. Um, so he's talking about the covenant that God makes being irrevocable regardless of how the humans that he makes a covenant with act. And that, that goes to the righteousness of God is the problem. You can tell it all through uh, 2 and 3 of Romans, even into chapter 4. He keeps coming back to this. How can he make both Jew and Gentile together? Um, how can he set them both right? And uh, why does that Jew-Gentile thing always come back? And I think it becomes it, it becomes clear in the first of Romans chapter three because he says, "Does the unfaithfulness of Israel what's that creates a problem for God? How is he going to be faithful to the covenant with Israel when Israel has been?" faithless to their covenant of vocation and the answer is going to be what we need is a faithful Israelite 
We need, and that's where you got to keep. You can't just abstract Romans to be about just sin in general. It has to be include how he's using Israel. Mm-hmm. And so he calls Jesus Messiah, not just Jesus, but Messiah. And so uh, we need a faithful Israelite so that God can be faithful to his covenant with Israel and still justify both Jew and Gentile together. And so that's going to be very important to keep Romans 3 together. Because I keep wondering, why does Paul keep going back to Jew and Gentile together? If you set up the problem right, then that makes sense of how mm-hmm. the answer comes out. Yeah, so keeping Israel in mind and all this is... Uh, is necessarily necessary and makes it more complicated. And he mentioned that you know the faith of God. We we can understand that to be the faithfulness of God. Later in Romans, we we have or chapter three, faith of Christ. And you're going to talk about this, mm-hmm. but uh, a lot of translations say faith in Christ, as if it's our faith in Christ. But if you keep it the same pattern as faith of God means faithfulness of God, then faith of Christ would be the faithfulness of Christ. And that's, that just helps Romans 3 read so much better. Mm. It's about a faithful yeah. Israelite uh, allowing God to keep his faithfulness to the covenant. Yeah, but yes, absolutely. Just to no, that's a, well, to say it about four times is going to be necessary <laughs> because, um, because it's not in a lot of our translations. Um, so what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin. Verse 10, as it is written... There is no one righteous, <coughs> excuse me, not even one. So in just a little bit, we're going to talk about righteousness some more. But as we think about the law and the prophets and how they testify, we're thinking about God's righteousness being revealed or what it be, means to be made righteous. We're then given a picture of what that might look like. And it's not simply legal status. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Uh, This is like a list of, of what it means to be under sin or what it means to not be righteous uh, as we're following the progression of thought. So as we think about God making people righteous, we're thinking not only God's making people not guilty, but we're thinking God's making people something not this. Right? We're not going to be these same kind of people who now get a free pass. We're going to be people who are ever becoming less and less under sin, less and less characterized by this, and more and more characterized uh, by what righteousness should be. So uh, it's expanding our notions of righteousness beyond legal status. Uh, verse 19, <coughs> Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are, the Greek is technically, in the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no, literally, no flesh will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law, rather because, uh, rather, excuse me, <laughs> I have so many scratched out English translations uh, by the works of the law. It should say because, not rather, because through the law we become conscious of sin. So the idea seems to be here that the law helps reveal sin, but it doesn't make someone righteous. The law is not a problem. The law reveals the problem. Uh, sometimes it can enhance the problem because then you know what you don't, you're not supposed to do, and then it makes you want to touch the stove even though you're not supposed to touch the stove um, kind of thing. But the law is ultimately a good thing. 
but it reveals sin. It doesn't enable righteousness. And maybe there's, uh, there's also here an additional kind of jab at Jewish boasting. Uh, no flesh, not just no person, but no flesh. Those who kind of boast in their flesh, think circumcision. No flesh is going to be declared righteous by God by works of the law. And that might mean something like works of Torah. Um, so the, the more generic view works. Good deeds aren't going to get you there either. We got that in chapter one. Uh, but your ethnicity uh, is not going to get you there either. So in Romans, um, Jewish guys define the law is does that does that have have, have the attachments of all the laws beyond the uh, Ten Commandments, or is he is he referencing um, primarily Ten Commandments, or these Pharisaical laws that develop afterwards? <coughs> so to speak into this, yeah. is he? What's he mean when he says law? There are kind of three options. Some think he just means generic good deeds, but I don't think that fits with what he has. Some thinks he means more primarily Old Testament law, uh, law and prophets, as he sometimes says together. And others think he's talking about um, those, uh, those things that make Jews seem especially Jewish. So dietary laws, circumcision, and keeping Sabbath um, as kind of ethnic boundary markers. Uh, so three options. And so rather than fix that right now, uh, we might think which of those best fits our reading as we go through. Would, it, would you add anything to that? No, that's good. All right, so. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, 21 through 26. This, if it's, uh, this has got to be some of the most dense stuff that Paul does. And he unpacks some of it as we go throughout Romans. Uh, but we really <coughs> have to slow down here. Um, I wish Paul would have given some footnotes, uh, but, but we'll do our best in this, uh, recognizing that uh, this is not simple. So let's, uh, so last two weeks we've had some sort of hot dog reference. One, I threw one, George bribes his kid to eat a hot dog. Um, so to force another hot dog analogy on you before we get into this, uh, my wife made this nice healthy meal for our family and my uh, little wild four-year-old daughter who says what's on her mind sat down and was like, oh, because it was vegetables. She's like, why can't we have some real food like hot dogs? <laughs> um, and, and you know, our, our idea is, well, when you get mature, you realize this is real food. Sometimes uh, in our Bible study, I think we want the, uh, the easy stuff, the spoon-fed stuff. And this is, this is real food, and sometimes it's not easy to eat. And uh, my, I encourage you to read slow, to stick with it, and to wrestle with this, because um, I think you'll find it quite nourishing. Huh? You like that? Okay, 21. But now, apart from the law, God's righteousness has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. <coughs> so, notice the continuity and discontinuity. Apart from the law, the law and the prophets testify. So, Paul's already got like us in attention here. Okay, it's something apart, so it's good for Jews and Gentiles. It's not limited to the law, yet it's going to be in some sort of continuity with the law and the prophets. Also, we've already seen God's righteousness uh, as being something other than just legal status. God's righteousness has been revealed, verse 21. Now, having just heard this in typical Protestant context, we're thinking, oh, now we know how we're going to get our sins forgiven. But having read this, Romans 1 through 3, we're thinking, oh, 
since forgiven and being enabled to live new and God doing things, putting things to right. So we, we've got this bigger notion of righteousness. God's going to do right with regard to his covenant. God's going to do right with regard to sin. God's going to help make us right. Okay, those all sound good, uh, and they all sound bigger than sometimes our narrow reading of this. But what's that going to, uh, to look like? And how is this going to have that kind of continuity and discontinuity? Okay, verse 22. I'm in the NIV, and so I'm going to be critiquing the NIV. So it's going to be confusing if you're not in the NIV and I'm critiquing a translation you don't have. But literally it says, uh, more, more literally, this righteousness uh, is through faith of Jesus to all who have faith. Maybe I should write that down so you can see it. So the So it's a righteousness. You have to add a verb here is through the faith of Jesus to those who have faith. Did I get this, George? Is that about right? Jesus Christ. Oh, thank you. <laughs> All right. So we've already talked about what this might mean. A righteousness that is uh, doing right. This pen is no good. doing right with regard to the covenant, doing right with regard to sin, and uh, doing right thereby kind of enabling us to be right. Enabling in a good sense here. The NIV adds the word given to this. A righteousness is given through. And when it adds the word given, what it does is it kind of narrows out covenant and somewhat maybe of enabling, and and it makes it more just that legal kind of view. It becomes more of a status. A righteous status is given, is how it's typically read. But when we take this bigger view of righteousness and we realize uh, that there is no verb given, it's a righteousness is through, and then the NIV says, faith in Jesus Christ. I think, is that right? Faith in Jesus Christ. So it's literally faith of. So this could be your two options. How do we have no good markers here? That one's even worse. All right. These teachers use PowerPoint. <laughs> so two options, faith in Jesus Christ or the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So when you when the NIV makes these translation uh, choices, and it's not like it's a bad translation. I use it for a lot of stuff. But it's, um, it's narrowing down how you're going to read this. What George was suggesting is that <coughs> if part of God being faithful to covenant uh, is going to require a faithful Israelite. And here's where that language of faithfulness kind of fits. Um, so what, what's, what's happening with option B here, we'll say, this righteousness... Uh, God doing right with regard to covenant, with regard to sin, with regard to enabling us to be who we're meant to be, is made possible because Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was faithful. 
He was the faithful Israelite. Uh, he was the pure Israelite. Um, and then uh, that good news of God accomplishing this stuff is now uh, made possible for those who have faith. If no, no, not yet. You got to wait till yeah. we get to twenty-six. <laughs> Hold on, just a oh, second. You were, you were no, no, we're twenty-two right now. Oh, yes. Okay. So, the other, the more traditional option, righteousness is through faith in Jesus. If you'll notice, that gets kind of redundant. It's through faith in Jesus for those who have faith. Why say it twice? Why the redundancy? It seems, and I think that uh, those who are opting more for this one, it seems to make more sense to see that God does right through what Jesus Christ accomplished and that good news is made available now through faith so it's both yes I just would, would point out that if you go back to the, you know, the theme or the thesis that we talked about uh-huh. 117, yeah 117 the language is right there mm-hmm. the so Romans 117 one of those key verses For in the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed. We've already been thinking bigger about what God's righteousness is. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And we talked about this language of from faith as meaning something like God's faith to our faith. Faith from from faith to faith is another way of saying it. Uh, Yeah. Josh, the the last word, you have faith. Uh Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. There, is it the same word? Yeah, well, it's the verb Jesus? form, yeah. It's the verb form of that. Of faith. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so uh, I believe so. Is that right off the top of my head? Um, so this is pistis, this is pisteo. Okay. Um, so uh, I, I believe, the reason I didn't use the word belief is because earlier we had the word faith with regard to God's faithfulness, the word pistis. And we didn't think about it as belief then. We thought about it as faithfulness. This is why we're reading slowly and kind of grinding through, eating our vegetables, uh, so to speak, uh, in this. So earlier when we saw pistis, we were thinking God doing right. Here when we see pistis, rather than thinking belief, we're thinking Jesus doing right. And even here when we think about uh, receiving it by faith, we're thinking this has got to be more than receiving it by belief because we've already connected it to the obedience of faith. So that faith implies something more than belief, a kind of living out. So as we're trying to bring all this complex stuff together, and we're only in verse 22. Um, and I think, though, if we'll... <coughs> George, do you have anything to, to help clarify before we get a couple more verses? Well, I would, when I hear the, through those who have faith, I think, in my head, I think Paul means in contrast to works of law. So that's what he's trying to point out is that that God's right the God's way of making the world right has now been revealed on the basis of faith both the faithfulness of Christ and our faith in Christ not by the Torah not by Jewish works of law and that that's going to come up very clearly at the end of chapter 3 <coughs> yeah. I, I don't
Oh, yeah. Yeah, great book on that. Destroyer of the Gods just came out. Larry Hurtado. He talks about how uh, that shift makes a uh, makes a big difference, and uh, that we're still feeling today. I realize that I have about seven minutes to cover uh, a few more things, so I'm going to move uh, a little quicker, and maybe we'll have time for um, for more at the end. Uh, verse 23: For all sinned and fell short uh, of the glory of God. I think here you have captured, if you remember earlier, I talked about the problem, or a couple problems, guilt and not being able to live as we were meant to live. I think that's captured here. Sin, I, I take that part, all sinned, uh, and what we've read so far is to point to something of our guilt. But the falling short of the glory of God does not mean you fell short of perfection, uh, but it's you fell short of imaging God. We were created to image God in a certain way, and we're falling short of that image bearing. And so we don't only need forgiveness, but we need the power to not be under sin and to be who we were created to be. Uh, I was thinking about this. If we go back, those things you take for granted. God is Father. I was thinking about this as a father. What I want for my kids is not, the end goal is not that they're just obedient kids. But obedience is a means for them uh, to live full, kind of enriched, creative, good lives. And so the end goal for God of, with humans is not just obey and that's it but he wants us to obey so that we might become the kind of people we were meant to be. Uh, and so often I think we've seen obedience as the end rather than kind of the path to being who we were made to be. So yes, we've got a guilt problem, but we've also got a, um, a vocational problem, a living out problem. We've sinned and we've fallen short of who we were meant to be. Verse 24, and all are justified freely by his grace. Okay, justified. Hear that language of made right. Again, in this context, notice that whole string of things, verses 11 through 18. At the head of it, really the second half of verse 10, no one is righteous, no one is just, dikaios. Now we are made, verse 23, um, or excuse me, verse 24, uh, dikaio, so it's the verb form. So here's what we weren't. Here's what we can be, not just legally, but but living it out. So when we are justified, I think he's saying, hey, yeah, you're forgiven, but you're also made new. So at the end of Galatians, uh, one of the things Paul says is new creation. It's like, you're new. Something is happening. I love how C.S. Lewis talks about it. He says it's like the next step in human evolution. Uh, we're becoming uh, who we were uh, always meant to be. And then that uh, very important language in there, uh, by grace. We just can't lose uh, this sense of this is through the mercy of God. And one of the things this reveals is the nature of God. Why does God do this? Because by nature he is a being who is gracious. 
Uh, so we know who God the Father is. We know he's this gracious God. We know that uh, he's got to deal with sin. He's got to deal with us falling short. He's got to be faithful to covenant when he's got an unfaithful people. And so how does he resolve this? Well, he finds a way through his grace to resolve it. And not surprisingly, as we're going to see, um, what that means is he takes on our brokenness so that we might be made whole. Verse 24, through the faithful Israelite. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Messiah Jesus. Redemption here is slave language. We were made free, not just let off the hook, not just pardoned, but free. Again, that language of we were enslaved to one thing, now we are made free to do something else. Because the problem isn't just guilt, the problem is also um, that we aren't whole. And that is fixed by the king, by King Jesus. He enables our freedom because he defeats it. Uh, That's part of what shows his uh, royal authority. Verse 25, if verse 24 was dealing with the vocational issue, our being in slavery to sin, verse 25, I think, deals more with the guilt issue. God presents Christ. uh, Christ is built in there, but this just shows you the heart of God. The heart of God who by grace, how does he fix it? He presents his son, his king, as a sacrifice of atonement, as the mercy seat is the the language here, elastrion. Uh, He is the mercy seat. So one day, once a year, the Jews would have the Day of Atonement. All kinds of blood is shed, uh, and it's kind of a way of purifying Israel from sins and other impurities uh, for the year. (coughs) And now, in a dramatic way, this once-for-all sacrifice, to kind of use language from uh, the book of Hebrews, this once-of-all sacrifice uh, purifies those of faith completely. Uh, It's just this beautiful thing, Um, and it's accomplished by uh, by his blood. All right, let me, let me pause you because i got two minutes and i got a lot to cover, okay? So, yeah, mercy seat, it can also mean propitiation. Uh, so we have the wrath of God in chapter 1. So it can be a kind of turning away through atoning for it uh, in that way. So it's, it's, it's certainly capturing that. i got to stop you. i got to stop you because i got two minutes and i got to get the, the rest of this. I'm sorry. All right. At the end, after, I'd love to talk. All right. Um, to demonstrate his righteousness. So verse 25. He's demonstrating his righteousness. Again, he's not just showing his righteousness with regard to sin, but with regard to covenant, with regard to Israel, uh, and with making us right. Because in his forbearance, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have the faith of Jesus. Let me give you a short summary of how uh, Wright puts this together because he's so quotable. And I'll limit myself to one, and then I will... Uh, preview maybe where George is going uh, next week because I think chapter 4 may connect uh, a little bit more to verses 27 through 31. So here Paul demonstrates that God is in the right. We recall the puzzle set by writers of Paul's day. Granted universal sin, granted God's promise to Israel, how can God be just? So hear that, how can God be just to Israel? How can God be just in dealing with sin? 
How can he be in the right and be faithful to covenant and at the same time do what a just judge ought to do? Deal with the evil on the one hand and on the other rescue helpless people who call to him in distress. What Paul has written here, admittedly, in a very dense and tight-packed fashion, amounts to this. In the death of Jesus, God has shown himself, one, to be right in dealing properly and impartially with sin. Two, to be faithful to the covenant. Three, to have dealt properly with sin. And four, to be committed to saving those who call out in helpless faith. So, absolutely, saved by grace through faith. But we're thinking then about how we are made right, bigger than just forgiveness, uh, but how we are enabled to be made right, and how that connects to what God was doing all the way through Israel uh, and to us. So we've seen this kind of apart from the law and in continuity with the law. George, I'll give you the last minute or two. I think uh, we've often seen Romans chapter 3 in these verses we just talked about as the key to Romans, but I I think we need Romans chapter 8. So a lot of what we think about God dealing with sin in Romans chapter 3 is we see this in context it's more about are we saved by works of law meaning the Jewish law or are we saved by faith but just turn real fast to Romans chapter 8 and we'll read 1 through 4 and I think this feels to me this is more the heart of Romans when we talk about sin therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus the law the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death what the law was powerless to do because of its weakened, because mm-hmm. it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful humanity to be a sin offering. So He condemned sin in human flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. That that just reads more like I think how we traditionally read Romans chapter three. Romans three works better as a Jew Gentile question, and Romans eight is where we really see the heart of the gospel and how it applies and living out through the spirit through the power of the spirit we keep the law <coughs> through the power of the spirit also I, I, I apologize for pontificating a little bit too much but George and I went to school and did the uh, biblical language together and I went and studied underneath Rick Oster at Harding Graduate School and I took the uh, military chaplaincy route and once I became colonel I retired and, and so he did a PhD, I did a military, so that's where this connection comes from. So forgive my baton. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I, yeah. I get excited about Romans because <laughs> I took Rick Osher's class. Oh, yes. And it was the hardest class in the world. So <laughs> we'll talk, me we'll talk after class. Yeah. Like, I'll catch yes. you up on the PhD. Thank you. So. <laughs> <laughs> Chapter four for next week. A chaplain. <laughs> yes, thank you. Yeah, yeah, so um, um, we both did Harvard Floyd, and you've heard Rick Oster, I guess, right, at Harvard uh-huh. Graduate School.